am excited about this series. I really, really am excited about it. We're in week number four of an eight-part series. This is a long one for us. We usually don't go beyond four or five weeks, but this is, this is special. We're actually teaching a series that was written by Andy Stanley, and this was so impactful for Cole and myself that we said we have got to present this to our church here in Stuttgart and to the church that you helped us start, your baby church in Malvern. And that's what we're doing. And so we are in week number four. We would suggest that you go listen to weeks one, two, and three because they are so significant to your journey. Um, this is such a great, great series. You know, everything, here, here's where this premise all begins. We, we said that the premise for the entire series is this, that faith has a beginning point. Um, we know that everything has a beginning point. Everything begins, and so does our faith. Once upon a time, you, you didn't know anything about God or faith or anything. You may have been very, very little, may have been tiny, a little person, and you didn't know a thing. You didn't have any belief system. You didn't believe anything at that point. And someone came to you and they handed you a beginning point for faith, a beginning point that said, and maybe it was a parent, uh, they said, here, believe this. It was probably your mom or maybe your dad. And then they took you to church. And the next thing you knew, they were teaching you. And they were saying, hey, here, you can believe this, believe this. And well, as a kid, you were like, well, of course, of course, I, I'll believe that. I mean, I believe in Santa Claus. I believe in the tooth fairy. And yeah, I believe in Jesus too. And whatever else you were told to believe growing up as a child, that's what you had to work with. But sometimes as you grew and as you got a little older, it didn't always work for you, right? And so then we went to high school maybe, and we started wondering a little bit about life decisions, and then we hit college and maybe didn't think much about this stuff at all in college perhaps. And we became adults and we settled into our responsibility of life, and at some point along the way, many of us, there was this growing gap between what we were taught as children and what we were experiencing in life as an adult. And this gap was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And for most of us, we responded to this gap in one of two ways. For some of us, and this is the way I responded to it as I was growing up, some of us said, well, I'm just going to believe it anyway, even though there seems to be things that I don't understand, like uh, did, did, was there really a flood that flooded the entire earth? I couldn't understand how that would work scientifically, and were there really, how did they get all those animals on the ark? I had all these questions that I didn't know if I could ever get an answer to, and so I just said, well, I'm just going to believe it anyway, even though I can't understand, I'm going to believe it anyway, and then I would hear people asking questions. They would ask questions that I couldn't answer about the age of the earth, or uh, and, I, and I would just say, well, you just have to believe. And, and they would ask questions about, well, don't Christians believe this? And if you look at God in the Old Testament, all those people died. And if you look, and it's like, well, don't Muslims teach this, the same thing too about this? And I'd be like, I, I, I don't know. I would just say, you just got to believe it. You just got to believe. And yet there was a reality that of me just saying, well, you just have to believe. I don't know the answer. You just have to believe. And by the way, don't even look at those things. We don't have to answer those things. Let's ignore them. Let's ignore all those things. Uh, because for me, honestly, if I were to look at them closely, um, it would have undermined my faith. So I just ignored some things. Maybe that's you too. Or maybe, maybe for you, um, you realize that, wow, there seems to be a problem. I've got questions that I can't answer. I've got things I don't understand, things that don't make sense for me, maybe possibly for you in this century, and that was so old and so long ago. And here's what I was taught as a child. This is what I was taught. But in my life, in my adult life, I don't see how that plays out in my adult life. And so the gap for me, maybe you're saying this, or maybe this was your, your thought on it, is getting broader, deeper, wider, and I don't think most people make a decision one day and say, well, I'm just not going to believe anymore. 
what happens usually is that belief gets chiseled away slowly, one question at a time, one trauma at a time, one death at a time, one sickness at a time, one tragedy at a time. It gets chiseled away until eventually it just slowly dissipates and becomes irrelevant little by little by little over time. And the next thing you know, you're busy with life. It's not like you sat down one day and you thought this through. No, it's just over the course of time, there was such a disparity between what you were taught as a child and then your experience as a teenager and an adult. And you realized, hmm, this doesn't seem to be working for me. And maybe somebody along the way as a teenager or an adult, maybe they invited you to church and you said, okay, sure, I'll come because they bugged you and they bugged you and they bugged you. And you finally said, yes, I'll go. And you did. And maybe it even pulled at your heartstrings, you know, maybe you were touched by the experience, but yet then when you looked at that gap that you had been experiencing from your childhood to now your adulthood, And you're saying, no, the gap is just too big for me to go there. It's just too big. What do you do with that, right? Well, here's what we decided. In this series, we're just going to ask this question. What would it look like to begin again with faith? What would it look like if I were to start right now, either as an adolescent, if you're a teenager, or as an adult, what would it look like if I were to find a new beginning point for my faith and just wipe the slate clean? You know, and we know we can't really do this totally because we have so many emotional uh, connections to growing up and to what we were taught and what we experienced as a child that we can't really wipe it all away. We have too many ties, too many roots to that. But as best we can, what if we just wipe the slate clean to kind of start over and kind of start fresh with faith? What if we ask those very same questions about faith and we ask them again, this time we ask as we're looking for adult answers and not a childhood answer. What might it look like? And that's what this series is about. As I told you, we're in part number four. If you miss parts one through three, that's fine. You can catch up with those, but we would really encourage you to do that because they are so vital to where we're headed with this series. And it needs to be taken in its entirety. So today we're going to tackle something that all of us have wrestled with at some point along the way. Within the context of faith and religion, today we want to talk about this, the role of rules. That's what we're going to talk about today. Because in every religion, no matter what it is, there are always these pesky little rules or big rules, but they are pesky and they're there. And that's not all. In every religion, there's also a rule maker. And by the way, it's never me and it's never you, right? We're never the rule makers. Someone else says we make all the rules. But in every religion, there is this list of rules. Uh, There's the five pillars of Islam. There are the Ten Commandments. You've heard of those. There's the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of Christ followers look at that. Every single religion, doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or a Sikhist, it doesn't matter what ist follows your name. If there's an ist there, there, everybody has a list of things that says, here are the rules. And we don't get to make the rules, but we do find ourselves butting up against them all the time. Now, since I grew up in a Christian household, in the Christian faith, I can kind of poke funds at Christians because I am one. So with Christianity, it's kind of weird because we have all these different variations of Christianity. We've got the Catholic versus the Protestant. People have died over that. Lots of people. We've got the Protestants. Man, there's like a bajillion different Protestant groups out there, and they all say all these different things. Now, I grew up, the ist that I grew up was Baptist. I grew up Baptist. Uh, And we had our own, we had a set of rules for the Baptist. Um, And then down the road, there were the Presbyterians. 
um, and they had their set of rules. And across town, there was also the Methodists. Now, we didn't think they had enough rules, to be honest. <laughs> we thought they needed some more. Because as a Baptist uh, kid, as I was a student, I was looking, I was like, they're having a little too much fun. Um, I think they need some new rules. They need some different rules. And then we got the Catholics. They have their whole, a whole different thing with the Catholics. But there's one thing that we do have that we all share between all the the, the uh, Christian uh, denominations. One thing, it's this. There's plenty of guilt to go around. Absolutely. Shame? Oh, there's plenty of shame. We got plenty of shame no matter where you are in the Christianity. Plenty of shame to go around. But the question I want to ask today, ask today is this. What's with all the rules? Uh, uh, why are the rules such an important part of religion? I want to ask that today. Why are those rules something that we constantly find ourselves bumping up against? And if we're to be honest, why do we choose to rebel against those rules? The rules might even for you be why you left whatever tradition you grew up around with religion, that may be why you left. And that may be the reason why you said, I'm never going back in. I'm never going back in a building unless it was maybe for a wedding or a funeral. You said, I'm not going back. It's, it's the rules. It's the rules. The rules were so oppressive. And they didn't seem to work in this real world that you were living in, this teenage, adolescent, adult world. So what we want to talk about today in a very general way is what is the relationship between rules and between religion? And specifically, is there a relationship between rules and somehow between this creator of the universe that we call God, whom we are told who cares about us and who loves us? What's the relationship between rules, us, and him? So let's begin this premise today, um, and it may be something that you have never thought about before, but let, here's our starting premise. Rules always assume a relationship. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Wherever you have rules, wherever you have rules, there is some kind of relationship. And that's true of something that's religious. It's also true of all the non-religious things. If there's rules, there's some kind of relationship. Where you find rules, you find some kind of relationship where there is accountability every single time. There's some kind of relationship connected to rules. So let me try to clarify this a little bit. To explain better, we have created some uh, categories. Now, as you think through this, you might have better categories or other categories, and that's okay. What we're talking about today, this is just to get us started, all right? Just to get us started. So there's, uh, here's the first model. There's a family model. And McKinley is going to leave these on the screen for a long time because we're going to be talking about these. There's a family model. Now, here's what the family model of rules looks like. You were born into a family, so was I. And as part of that family, your parents began to make some rules for that family that you were born into. Now, they didn't make the rules and then make you a part of the family. Those rules had nothing to do with you being a part of the family. You're in the family, and because you're already part of the family then they established rules for everyone in that family. You had different rules maybe when you were in elementary school. You had some different rules as a middle schooler and a junior high and then different rules in high school. And eventually in that family, you grew up, you moved out, and you outgrew the family rules, right? We all have or have been, you're in, in that process right now. You were still part of the family, but now at some point you didn't have to obey those rules anymore. But the point is this, as a kid, you had rules when you were under the household umbrella and you lived there, you had rules. But those rules were not to become part of the family. They were there because you were already a part of the family. So your parent or your parents set rules for you. Now, here's an interesting 
uh, part of this parent rule thing. Parents only set rules for their own kids. That doesn't mean that we haven't all been in Walmart and saw some kids that we thought, I need to give them some rules. <laughs> it doesn't mean that at all. I was at Silver Dollar City this week, and I saw a whole bunch of kids that I wanted to give some rules to. I, I refrained. I didn't do it because they're not in my family. But you have never called up your neighbor and asked, hey, can I speak to your daughter? And you get the daughter on your phone, and you're like, hey, listen, have you done all your homework? Have you finished it all? And, and by the way, why are you still up? No, you have not done that. Why? Because they're not your kids. It's not, you don't do it because it's not your kids. Because in, in speaking of the family model, rules are only for members of your family, the one family. The rules don't make you a part of the family. You have those rules because you are part of the family. You got it? Does that make sense? Okay, here's the second model. We'll call that the club model. So we got the family model and we got the club model right there. Club model. Well, with this model, the club model, you agree to a certain number of rules in order to begin that relationship. You join a club, they give you a contract, you read it, and if you're okay with everything, you sign it. And once you sign it, you agree to keep those rules, and you're in. You were in. But if you break the rules, you're out. You're out. This could also be like the employee model. You could call it the employee model. When you go to work for a company, when you start work, they tell you, this is how we do it here. I don't really care how you did it there. This is how we do it here. This is how we do it, and this is how we expect you to do it. And if you take that job, you're agreeing to those rules, and that's how you get into that relationship with that new job. That's how you get in. You agree to keep the rules. Uh, if you get into a fraternity, same thing. A sorority, if that's what you go after, same thing. The list goes on and on and on of examples. But these two models are different. See, the, the, the family model... You get in first, and then you have the rules. A relationship is established first, and then you have the rules. With the club model, you get the rules first, you agree to those rules, and that establishes the new relationship. Now, just for fun, we're going to throw in a third thing because this gets a little confusing. So why not make it a little more confusing? We've created a third category. This category is going to be called the neighborhood association model. Now, we don't have a lot of neighborhood associations in Stuttgart or the area or even in Malvern. We don't have, we don't have a lot of neighborhood associations, but you've heard them talked about on TV, I'm sure. With a neighborhood association, um, here's what happens. Um, you don't always know where you stand, and that's kind of a problem. You're free to buy the house. You can buy the house in that neighborhood. And as long as you obey the neighborhood covenant, well, everything's fine with everybody. Everything goes great. But the moment you start slacking in that neighborhood on your property that you bought, the moment you start slacking, then you're going to get a nasty note in the mailbox. Yeah, the neighborhood association model, you're going to get a nasty note in the mailbox because you're in, because you lived there and you bought your house there, but you're also out because you're not doing what they want. Maybe you let your, your grass grow a little too tall. You're going to get that nasty note. They're going to guilt you, shame you, threaten you. They can't actually make you move but they can sure treat you in such a way that you wished you lived somewhere else. Now, these are just a few models. We got the family model, the club model, this neighborhood association model. But the point of all of this is wherever there are rules, family, club, neighborhood association, you are in a relationship. You are accountable to a certain list of rules. Now, if you take these kind of crazy ideas and you begin to transpose these into a religious belief, you can see why this gets so confusing. 
Because which one is it? Huh? In a religious sense, which with religion, which model is it? Is it that, like the family model, you're in with God, no matter what you do, you're in, but you've got some rules because you're part of that family, you have some rules to live by? Or is it this, the, the club model, where it's like, hey, if you behave, you get in. But if you don't keep behaving, you get kicked out, right? Is it the club model? Or, or is it like this neighborhood association model where they actually can't kick you out, but they can just treat you really bad. They can shun you and shame you and guilt you to death until you finally cave and do what they want you to do, live the way they want you to live. And it's like they'll never be happy with you as a human being, but you know, it's like God's never going to be happy with you. But he'll just keep shaming you and guilting you until you cave. But even when you do finally cave, never really going to be happy with you, but he's just going to put up with you. Is that the model? Here's the interesting thing. When I throw all these categories out, we begin thinking theologically and we begin thinking emotionally because as we sort through this, we do have questions. Like if we have ever questioned, is there a God? Is there a way to have a, a personal God, a personal relationship with a God? There's such an emotional component to all of this because we've experienced these models in some sort of way. Maybe for you, uh, you were taught this family model, perhaps. Maybe you were taught the family model, but you feel like the club model. Like if you don't do it, you're going to get kicked out of the family, right? Maybe you feel that way, and that, that's, that's conflict there. Or maybe you were taught the club model that you have to do this, you have to do this, and if you don't, you're out, and you've never felt like you were part of the family because you always felt like you were really deep in your heart out. Now, what is it? How do we know which one it is? And regardless of which belief system that you were raised up with or that you kind of line up with that you have thought, you're going to wrestle with this question of how does my behavior line up with God? We've all had that question. What does God expect from me? When, I, when am I in with God? When have I done enough? Or when am I out with God? What is it going to take? What's that big thing that's going to boot me out? Or how in the world am I supposed to know any of this? How do I know? Do I just have to guess? So to help us wrestle this question to the ground, or at least uh, create for us a framework as we begin to struggle with these thoughts and ideas and questions, I want us to go all the way back to just about the oldest laws that were ever given. And not the oldest, but just about. The oldest ones we have in term of history. And it's the most well-documented as well because it's found its way into Jewish literature, into Christian literature, also found its way into Islamic literature. And we call it the Ten Commandments. So around 1446 BC, the Ten Commandments show up on the planet. They were given by God. This is what we believe as Christians. Muslims believe this. The Jewish uh, folks believe this. Given by God to Moses for the people. And here's an interesting thing about the Ten Commandments. Nobody really knows all 10 of them. <laughs> I mean, maybe they know two or three. Maybe they can figure out right, but all 10 in order? No, no, no. And, and the other thing is we know about them. We know the 10 commandments are there. We know that they're in the Bible. We know that. We're just not sure where in the Bible. So I'm going to do something this morning as we start off. I'm going to tell everybody and everyone who's listening online exactly where the Ten Commandments are. And this is going to be kind of a play-along thing. I'm going to ask you to repeat it. The Ten Commandments are found in Exodus 20. Exodus 20. So I'm going to ask the question, and then you just kind of play along with me out loud. The Ten Commandments are found in Exodus 20. 20. Right. Great. You got it. Now you know exactly where they're found. Now, real quick, before we look at them, if you weren't here last week, I want to kind of tie all of this together for us. Last week, we talked about this guy named Abraham. 
Abraham. And from Abraham to where we're talking about today, I want to connect a few dots because a lot of history happened from Abraham to the Ten Commandments. So very quickly, here's what happened. We've got Abraham. McKinley's going to put him on the screen. There's Abraham. He just popped up right there. That's Abraham. Abraham was kind of first on the scene as God said, I'm going to do something really amazing through you, Abraham, and it's going to be a great nation and, and it's going to benefit everyone in the world. It's going to be really big, really big. Abraham. Uh, and in order to do that, you got to have a son. And so Abraham was promised a son between Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Abraham gets a little antsy when he's getting a little older. He's getting pretty old. Uh, gets a little antsy, and he's like, maybe I need to help out God. So Abraham has a child with his wife's servant. This child's name is Ishmael. So here comes Ishmael on the screen. And then later, Abraham has the son that he was promised by God with his wife, Sarah, and this son's name is Isaac. Now, there's something interesting here uh, about, about Ishmael. Ishmael um, for Islam is considered this child of the promise where God promised a great nation. Islam considers, yeah, that was Ishmael. Um, in Judaism and Christianity, um, we follow the, the writings in Genesis and it tells us that Isaac is that son of the blessing. And this is where the three major world faiths, Islam, uh, Christianity, Judaism, kind of take a split. Christianity, Judaism come over here, and Islam comes over here. But here, here's an interesting note. I'm just throwing this out as information. This is just fact. I'm just throwing it out as fact. Everything we know about Ishmael being the child of promise Everything we know about that comes two, over 2,000 years after Abraham had Ishmael. And we were taught that 2,000 years after the life of Ishmael, no one up to that point considered Ishmael and his descendants to be the child of promise. No one did until 2,000 years after Ishmael came a man named Muhammad. And Muhammad taught that Ishmael was the child of promise. This is 2,000 years later. This is like 600 years after Jesus walked the earth. Muhammad comes along and says, no, Ishmael was the child of promise. But up until that point, everyone believed that Isaac was the child of promise. Everyone believed that until like six. So that's an interesting point. That's just a fact. All right, so let's look at Isaac now for just a moment. Isaac, Isaac was the son uh, of Sarah and Abraham. So here, McKinley has Isaac on the screen for us. Now I'm gonna give you, this is a quick, quick history. So we had Abraham, his son here, Isaac, who was the child that God promised and that said, hey, there's gonna be a great nation. There's gonna be, uh, the whole world's gonna be blessed through you, Abraham. So here we have Isaac, his son from Sarah, and then Isaac, one of his children, uh, the names of one of his chi children is Jacob. Uh, Jacob is a very, very kind of famous guy in this whole line as we're talking about things. I can't give you all the information, but he's a famous guy. Jacob actually has 12 sons. And from those 12 sons, eventually we're going to get to the nation of Israel. But before, leave that on the screen there for me, McKinley, before we get there, Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons, his name is Joseph. Now, this is a famous guy. You may have heard of him. Has anyone heard of Joseph and the coat of many colors? So many of you have heard that. So um, Joseph at this time was the youngest in the family. All of his brothers were jealous of Joseph. There's some good reasons why. And they're so jealous that they say, we need to get rid of Joseph. So they come up with a plan. They go have a couple of variations of the plan, they end up with, hey, let's sell him uh, to uh, some slave traders, and we'll do that, get rid of him forever. He won't be in our lives anymore. Things will be better. And uh, we'll go home and tell dad that he got killed. And uh, sad day, but uh, not for us. Woo, woo. So they sell him into slavery. J Joseph then basically grows up as a slave in Egypt. 
But Joseph moves as he grows up. Joseph moves as he goes up from a young, from a teenager to a young man. He grows up and he becomes second in command of all of Egypt, right under the Pharaoh. A great famine takes place. People are starving to death. Nations are struggling. Well, there weren't a lot of nations, but whatever was there, they were struggling. They were hurting. They were starving. Joseph, through a long story short, tells all of his family, hey, y'all come here to Egypt, all of his brothers and his father, all the whole family say, come to Egypt. We have plenty of food. I will make sure you have plenty of food. And that's how all of his brothers, all of his family, they come to Egypt. And that's how this nation of Israel kind of begins really in Egypt now. So this family of Jacob, these 12 sons, man, they start having babies and baby, they are having babies like rabbits. I mean, they are everywhere. This these people are growing. This people group is growing and growing, growing. Some people, after some years, come to uh, they come to, and they're just free, free people, and they just growing. And they they come to Pharaoh, whoever's Pharaoh now at this time, and they say, Hey, Pharaoh, listen, we got a problem here. Uh, there are so many of these people called Hebrews. There are so many of them that they're going to outnumber us and take over us in Egypt, and they'll be in control. So they turn this entire people group that are called Hebrews now, they turn them into slaves. And they are slaves for 400 years. 400 years, generation after generation, to the point that that's all they knew. They were born, by this time, born into slavery. That's all they knew was slavery. We are a people that are just slaves. Where Abraham's family, Isaac's family, Jacob's family, but we're just slaves. We are a slave nation. All they knew was slavery. When they would get together in their little slave their slave area where they lived, they'd get together and they would tell stories to their kids. We, we would call them Bible stories. They'd sit down and they'd say, listen, I'm going to tell you a story about Father Abraham. Had many sons, many, no, <laughs> they would say, Father Abraham, if you ever went to VBS, you knew that one. Uh -huh. um, Father Abraham, let me tell you about Father Abraham, that um, uh, they would tell stories and they would say, you know, gather around children, listen to this. This is made many, many, many years ago. Uh, God came to Abraham, our father Abraham, and, uh, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. And maybe there was a question. Yes, yes, yes. You in the back. Yes. Got a question. So that's what God promised. Yeah? Huh? All of us? Yes, that's what God promised. And we, we are that nation? Yes. Yes, we are. Yeah, well, uh, didn't work out too good, did it? We're slaves. We're slaves. Oh, sit down. Be quiet. Let's, let's continue the story. So many, many years ago, many years ago, God promised Father Abraham, not only would we be a great nation, but also that the entire earth would be blessed through us. Yes, yes, you here on the front row. Yes. Um, we're slaves. Oh, sit down. Be quiet. Put your hand down. <laughs> you know, it's like they struggled even then. This was a conflict. So here is what we have been told is not lives growing up as children and now into adulthood, but our reality is not matching what we were told. They had the same problem that we can sometimes have today. So for 400 years, the story of Father Abraham, the promise of a son, the promise of a dream that they would be a nation and that they would be free and that they would be an important people and that they would have influence and that, that for some reason the entire earth would be blessed through them. That was just what seemed like a fairy tale. And it was so long ago. They're thinking none of this is ever going to happen. We are slaves. It's never going to come true. You're just telling us those stories so that we can have faith in something that it will be better. But it's just a pipe dream. You're just telling us those stories so you can keep in control of us. Keep yourself in charge. But then a man shows up on the scene and says this. Can you help me? Let my people 
go, right? He says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, <laughs> no, not going to let the people go. And Moses says, oh yeah, well watch this. And then all nature completely just freaks out and you've got locusts and then you have these boils, you got blood, you got darkness. It was insane. <laughs> it was just, just craziness. The next thing you know, Egypt's economy is completely ruined. And if you know the story, eventually Moses leads these people, this nation of Israel, out of Egypt. And this isn't just a Jewish thing. This isn't just a Christian thing. Did you know the name of Moses appears more in the Koran than any other name? This, what I'm telling you, this is history. So anyway, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. About three weeks later, they land at the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up the mountain to get to receive God's law. Because remember, this is so important. All this nation knows is slavery. That's all they know. 400 years of slavery. They have no rules. They have no laws. They have no civil government. They've got just a little bit of history and that's it. They don't even really know this God that saved them, that freed them. Nothing. They don't really know anything. So they go to Mount Sinai and according to the record, Moses goes up onto the mountain. God gives him this nation their very first set of laws. And part of that is what we call the Ten Commandments, which you can find in Exodus. Exactly, right. Now, I want us to read together the prelude to these Ten Commandments. Because in these two verses, and this is our focus for today, these two, into how this thing called religion and God and rules all interact and all fit together. And here's how it begins. The prelude to the Ten Commandments is this, Exodus 20, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words. So this is what, really? Really? You really are? Yep. He said, I'm the Lord your God. So if you're the Lord, our God, then that would make us your people. Yep, that's right. Well, exactly, God, how did that happen? Because when did that happen? I mean, we're, we're not sure. We, we haven't done anything yet. Why would we be your people? I mean, we've been in slavery for 400 years. You drag us out of there and suddenly you're our God and we're your people? Yep, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. I'm the Lord your God who has done something for you. And remember this, you have done nothing for me. I'm the Lord your God, your deliverer. I have taken you out of your darkest moment in life and I've given you hope. I mean, when Abraham just seemed like a fairy tale to you, a distant story that would never come true, you would tell your children about it so they wouldn't lose hope. I sent a deliverer into Egypt and I dragged you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God and you are my people. I have done something miraculous for you, spectacular for you, and you haven't done anything for me. And the Hebrew people might be thinking, well, yeah, we haven't done anything for, because what would we do? What are we supposed to do? We don't know what the rules are. We don't know if we've kept them, if we've broken them. We have no idea. And God might then reply to them, yeah, yeah, I know. I know you don't know what the rules are. But before I give you the list of rules, I want you to know and be very clear before I give them to you, you are mine and I am yours. And he established that right there. Before we start talking about any rules, I want to clarify. We're going to sit down and have a DTR. Anybody know what a DTR is? Determine the relationship. And God sat down and had a DTR with him. Let me be very clear. We're going to determine the relationship first. You are mine. I am yours. 
before we get to any rules, let's establish the relationship. See, a really interesting thing happened in Egypt before all of this. So let me go backwards and fill in some important information. So about the time they're in Egypt and all the plagues started happening, you know, the locusts, the blood, all that. About the time that was happening, after the Egyptian economy was turned upside down and completely decimated. Pharaoh eventually was like, get out of here. But the most interesting thing happens right before he said, get out of here. God, through Moses, that would make Moses a prophet. God, through Moses, speaks to the Jewish people, these Hebrew people. And he tells Moses to tell the people God has one thing that he wants you to do. One thing. Remember, there's no Ten Commandments yet. No law. Nothing. They think that they're special because they are looking back at the promises that God made to Abraham. But they're not sure because they've lived 400 years as slaves. I don't know. Maybe it's not. And Moses tells these Hebrew people, that there's something God wants you to do. God wants you to trust him. The message is simply this. Moses says, God is saying, trust me. I just want you to trust me. That's what I want you to do. And God through Moses tells them, okay, here's what you got to do. Before you go to bed tonight, I want you to slaughter a lamb, which was no big deal. They did that all the time. And then I want you to have a meal of that lamb. Well, which is no big deal. They did that all the time. But afterwards, I want you to take the blood from that lamb and I want you to put blood over your doorpost and down the sides of your door. Okay, wait a minute, God. I was with you up to that point, but why would we do that? That makes no sense. And God is saying, trust me, trust me. Okay, God, but what difference is it going to make? Trust me. So that night, the majority of the Hebrews, of the Jewish people, the majority of them did that. They did exactly what God asked them to do. Not everybody, but the majority did. They took the blood of the sheep and they put it across their door. They put it down the sides and they went ahead as told and they packed up everything they had because they were told they would be leaving in the morning. Really? We're going to be leaving? We like been, been slaves for 400 years. Really? In the morning? Really? And God says, trust me. And that night, the angel of death went into every family, every household in the land of Egypt. And the oldest child died in every one of those homes, except that angel passed over every household that had the blood of that lamb on the door. That angel passed over. And the next morning, Pharaoh said, go, take everything you have, take everything we have that you want, and just get out of here. And from that time on, the Jewish people would celebrate this thing called the Passover, and they did it to remember not the Ten Commandments, no, 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 not the law, they did it to remember what God did as he passed over sent that angel to pass over them and spare them. And they celebrate that. They still do today. To remember that night that God whispered to the nation, I just want you to trust me. And in trusting me, you will find that you will be delivered from slavery. And that's what happened. And then three weeks later, they find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God says, Okay, now I'm going to give you some rules, but 
let's make sure you don't forget the most important thing. I am the Lord your God and you are my people. I am the one that has delivered you from slavery. Now, there's some things I want you to do. As we learn to live together, you and I, and as you learn to live with each other, because after all, it's, you've been a slave nation. You have had no government of your own. And God gives them their first commandment. The very first commandment in Exodus chapter 20 is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, yes. I mean, you delivered us from, well, duh, really? Yeah, that's, that's all you're asking. Okay, yes. I mean, you delivered us from slavery. You have given us a future, given our children, our grandchildren, a future. You did this and that's all you're going to ask from us? Absolutely. Put a check in that box. That's done. We'll do it. What's next? What's coming next? I mean, who can compete with a God who can totally wreck the economy of Egypt? So what's next, God? Bring it to us. But here's the point of all of that. And here's something I want you to think about. The Ten Commandments were given, they were a confirmation of, they were not a condition of Israel's relationship with God. It wasn't a condition. Okay, Israel, here, here we go. I'm going to give you 10 things to do here. And um, if you do these, th these 10 things, you can be my people, okay, if you'll do these 10 things. But listen now, if you mess up five of those 10, uh, then we're going to have to see. And I'll tell you why. Here's the truth. If you, if you, met, if you have eight mess-ups, well, forget it. I'm just going to have to go get me some more people. <laughs> no. This is important. The Ten Commandments, the oldest laws that we have, 1,500 years before Jesus, 2,100 years before Muhammad, this is as far back as we can go and connect law with God. And it didn't have to be this way. I mean, God could have been completely conditional. And said, you can be my people if. No, in the beginning, as far back as we can go, God made it absolutely clear to this nation of Israel. You are my people, even though you have done absolutely nothing to deserve it. And now that we've established that relationship, I want to teach you how to live together and how to live under my authority. And God began with the basics. Just don't have any other God other than me. I mean, God would be like, well, what else do I need to do to demonstrate the fact that you can trust me? Look what I've already done. Now, there's something interesting. If you've ever tried to read the Old Testament, Genesis is kind of fun with creation and all this and what we're reading now. Genesis, I mean, what we talked about last week, Genesis is kind of fun. Most of Exodus is pretty fun. Uh, in fact, it's in Exodus uh, uh, where we find the Ten Commandments in chapter... Yeah, exactly. You're so great at this. But then we get to Leviticus and it's like, what? And then we get to Deuteronomy and Numbers and we're like, didn't you already say that? And it gets a little boring there, and, and it can, and, but eventually we get to these things that we call the prophets in the Old Testament. And if you've ever tried to read the prophets, there's something you're going to notice. It's like pe people like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and there's others. They kind of are saying the same thing over and over again. I mean, they're constantly ranting and raving, and, and, and usually they're ranting and raving all about the same thing. But they're always angry, right? But here's... Here's what all that is. The prophets are simply evidence of the fact that God wasn't going to give up on his people. Even when they disobeyed him, even when they broke the law, they weren't, as we look at them, we're like, I'm not sure it's worth hanging on to these folks, God. But God does. He does. The prophets are an example of God. He, he goes to them kind of like a good parent would go to us. He goes to them, and the prophets are saying, one, two, three, like a good parent. And then finally, oh, okay, you're in timeout. 
And God would put them in time out over and over. He would count to three over and over and over again through the prophets and put them in time out over and over and over again. And on and on it went. One time God put Israel in time out for 70 years. He said, I'm going to just put you over in the corner in Babylon over there. And you just kind of hang out there for 17 years. And then when this generation's gone, I'm going to bring you back and we're going to go over this again. But he's saying, I'm not giving up on you because This is not about what you have done for me because you are my people. I chose you to be my people before I ever gave you the first, thou shall or thou shalt not. I chose you first. The relationship came first. Most of history in Israel is a history of God saying it's not the club model. It's the parent model. It's the family model. It's not the club model. So essentially, we can say this. With God, relationship precedes rules. God opts for the family model over the club model. That's how he related to the nation of Israel. But the question is, is that how he relates to you? And what you're going to see if you take the Christian faith seriously, and if you put away all the things maybe that we were taught as a child or that we understood or misunderstood as a child, and we do choose to begin again, you might eventually come to this. The role of rules. The rules are confirmation of, not a condition of, a relationship with God. I want to say that again. The role of rules. The rules are a confirmation of, not a condition of, a relationship with God. See, God is like a parent. He only gives rules to people who are already in relationship with him. Now, if that's true, regardless of where you land with religion, if that's true, that's staggering, that's amazing. If God's relationship with Israel is a model that says you can rebel and be disobedient and God just keeps coming back, over and over and over and disciplining and disciplining and disciplining, not to pay you back, not to get even, but to bring you back like a good parent does. That's staggering. And that says something about the expansive and the amazing love that God has for his creation and the amazing mercy and kindness that he has. But I've wondered this. What if Abraham and the nation of Israel were just like kind of special cases, you know? That that's how God was with them, but he's not that way with us. What if God plays favorites? What if God just liked Abraham more? Hey, Abraham, listen, you believed me once? Listen, you're in forever, Abraham. Israel, listen, I'm kind of bored. I need something to do. Okay, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to pick some people, and you guys, you're it. Hey, you're it. You're you're my pick. You're my people. I'm your God. But these Americans, whoo, the Canadians, ah, nah, sorry, no, no to the Canadians. What if God actually plays favorites? And what if it was true for Abraham and the nation of Israel, but the, but the rest of us, it's just more like, hey, you guys, you know, they're my favorite. You just kind of do your best. I'll let you know if it works out. Maybe, maybe one day, maybe I'll let it slide. Maybe I will. I'll tell you, I'll tell you in the end if you were good enough. The Ten Commandments, there you go. There's my standard. Uh, and you're going to have to just kind of work your way in. I'm giving them an end. You're going to have to work your way in, okay? You're just going to have to work it out. Um, you're going to have to you know, just figure it out. And you'll never really know. So you just get out there, kind of do the best you can. And, you know, uh, I'm never really going to make the standard super clear. So you're not going to really know. Um, So, but when you hit judgment, I'll let you know then. How's that? Deal? Deal. 
What if God's playing favorites? And it's just Abraham and Israel, but the rest of us, this is like God says, good luck. Now, here's the amazing thing. If you consider all of this, if you consider as you're thinking about, maybe I can begin again with my faith. When God made this promise to Abraham that we looked at last week, why it's important to go back there and look at that. When God initiated this relationship, then as we looked at today with Israel, he initiated that. One thing is absolutely certain. If you read this narrative yourself, it was not about Abraham. And it wasn't about this nation either. It was about all mankind. All. And here's how we know that, because I know you want to know. Well, how do we know? Here's how we know. Remember the promise from last week. He told Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. All, all the nations, not just the nation that's going to come from you, Abraham, not just that nation that will become All the nations of the earth are going to be better off because of you through you, Abraham. And then later, one of those prophets named that I talked about a moment ago, named Isaiah, he would say to the nation of Israel. So that's what God said. That's what God said to Abraham. Now God says to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, he says this, I will also make you, the nation of Israel, a light for the Gentiles. That's us. That's the rest of us. The rest of the world. The Jewish nation, God is saying, listen, you Jewish nation, my people, this is not just about you. You're going to be a signpost. You are going to be like a candle in a dark room. Israel, you are going to be a light to the rest of the world. And here's what he says, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Israel, as much as I love you, it is much bigger than you. This is not about you. This is about the whole world. And also, we shouldn't be completely surprised when about 1,500 years later, After God gives the law to Moses, about 1,500 years later, Jesus walks onto the planet. And what does he do? Before he demands anything, he also turns nature upside down. I mean, he heals, he stops storms, he speaks to the wind, he does things that that no one could imagine any human being able to do because he was God. And those that were closest to Jesus were often terrified of his power. And he just simply said, trust me, trust me. Trust me, because the promise that God fulfilled to Abraham, the promise that God fulfilled through the nation of Israel, and it began with the faith, all men and women, and it began with the faith of Abraham. It continued with the faith of the nation of Israel. And should we be surprised that such a message would be extended from the Lord Jesus Christ for us to have faith in him? Which is why John in the New Covenant, the New Testament, John who knew Jesus perhaps the best, it's John who was at the foot of the cross right before Jesus died. Jesus looks at John and says, hey, John, I want you to take care of my mother. Here's what that guy, John, here's what he said looking back on his time with Jesus. He said this, John chapter 1, yet to all who did receive him, to those who behaved, no, to those who followed the rules, no, to those who kept the law, no, to the right to become club members, no, the right 
to become a part of this neighborhood associate. No, the right to become children of God, to become part of the family in a relationship with. He said, as God began a nation through Abraham, and as God adopted the nation of Israel as his own, so that invitation to become a child of the living God has been extended to you, and it's been extended to me. Which means it is clearly the family model. Which means God is saying, anything that I require of you is evidence of my love for you. Anything that I ask of you is evidence that we have a pre-established relationship. You can trust me. We have a relationship because all along this has been about you. How do we start that relationship? If this is about relationship, how does it happen? And that's where we're going to pick up next week. But first, I've got a question for you as we wrap this up, and then I'm going to pray. Here's what I hope you'll think about in small group this week and talk about. As you were growing up, did you feel like religion was based on the family model? Or did you feel like it was based on the club model? Or did you feel like it was based on the neighborhood association model? Listen, this isn't a theological question. Because after today, you know what we think. You know what we're teaching. You know what the answer is. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking for the right answer. I'm asking, as you were growing up, what did you feel like it was? What model was it for you growing up? What did, what did religion feel like for you? Did you feel like that you had been adopted into God's family? Was it that model for you? And you were in because he did something for you and he loves you no matter what, literally no matter what? Or did it feel more like the club model? Did it feel more like, okay, here are these rules, and if you sign up, if you'll do this, then you're in. But if you don't, or if you fail enough, then you're out. What did you feel like it was for you as you were growing up? Or did you feel like, listen, you're in because you're human, neighborhood association model, and that God doesn't really like you, and when he gets irritated, he's going to kind of punish you and shame you and guilt you and really, really work you over until you eventually just give in? What was it for you? What did it feel like for you? I want you to think about this week. I want you to talk about that in your small group this week. And next week, we're going to see what God has done about it. Now, let's pray. Father, thank you for preserving these ancient documents for us. Through all of these ages, thousands of years, and we are here today to be able to, we can carry them around. We can have them on our phone, on our tablet. We can carry them with us. Father, please, in your grace and in your mercy, will you help open our eyes to whatever it is that you want us to see, that regardless of how we felt growing up, regardless of what we believed growing up, we want to get this right according to your view. We want to worship you as you are not how we imagine you to be. And for those who are listening, who gave up on knowing you years ago, would you, in your grace and your mercy, allow us just a little bit of light to shine through as a spark, a sense of hope that you, God, can be known. And Jesus, our God, our Savior, we're going to celebrate you in song right now. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.